0: On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now.
1: We've talked previously about the miracles of Jesus and in fact last time we spoke about the man at the pool of Bethesda who could walk again after 38 years We're going to focus a bit more on the healings of Jesus now, his healings. And we've come to a particular place in Jerusalem where one of those healings
0: uh, is recorded in the Bible. So where are we, Mike? Well, we've come to another pool, David, uh, the pool of Siloam, or Siloam as we tend to pronounce it in English, which is in the old city of David. Um, What is remarkable about this place is that it was used to enable the citizens to gather their water when they were under times of attack. In 722 BC, the Assyrians had conquered the northern area, the northern nation of Israel. And that meant Assyria was now just 12 miles or so away from here in Jerusalem. And so the good and godly King Hezekiah decided that what he needed to do was to strengthen the fortifications of the city because he could see it wouldn't be long before the Assyrians came and attacked him too. So he strengthened the fortifications of the city and he secured its water supply. And one of the ways that he did that was to have a tunnel built from the Gihon Spring, one of these natural springs where water came forth from, and to build a tunnel to bring it within the city walls. And I have to say, it's absolutely amazing. I've walked through it before, or actually waded through it before, because it still carries water. It's over 1,750 feet long. That's about 530-plus metres, over a third of a mile. Cut through solid rock, and his workers started at opposite ends, simply with chisels and hammers, and managed to meet up in the middle. Hmm. And the tunnel isn't even straight. It bends to go around faults in the rock. And this amazing feat of engineering in the ancient world, they did all this without any modern technology, of course. And they did it to secure that water supply so that the water could flow from the Gion spring through this amazing tunnel a height difference between where it starts and where it finishes of really no more than a foot which is again incredible engineering and the water came out here where we are sitting today in this pool of siloam this pool was actually discovered by accident just a few years ago they were doing repairs to the street outside and as they started to dig down what happened is what so often happens in jerusalem They unearthed some ruins and as they explored further, they discovered that it was this lost pool of Siloam. And you and I are sitting on the stone steps looking down into, well, we can only see part of the pool that's exposed at the moment because there are buildings over the rest of it. By New Testament times, however, this was no longer the city's water supply. The great King Herod had secured water supplies in lots of other ways. He had pools and cisterns and aqueducts. So this really was quite redundant as far as a water supply was concerned. So instead, in the second temple period, it was used for ritual bathing before the pilgrims then went up from here, up a long straight road, straight up to the temple, only about half a mile away. And that's where the key story is set that we're going to look at today.
1: Probably worth saying that there's no water in this pool at the moment. It's, a you know, you could say a little bit like a rectangular swimming pool, but only part of it's exposed. It's made of stone rather than the kind of blue tiles we might be familiar with. And in the shadow of a big uh, cliff face, actually.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's no water at the moment because it's not the rainy season. Uh, But normally when it is the rainy season, you definitely see water there as it came down through the tunnel and likewise when you go through the tunnel which tourists can still do it takes about 40 minutes to wade through very exciting to turn off the lights from your torches and just stand in total darkness there and often that water can be anything from just two or three inches deep to well I've waded through it when it's been as high as my knees and yet just behind us to the east is the Kidron Valley, and immediately south of us, we're just right at the end of the old city of David, is the Hinnom Valley. Well, let's hear the reference to this place in the Bible and
1: what happened here.
0: Yeah, it's a great story. So we find it in John chapter 9, and it's a story that was set right here by this pool. John 9 says that as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, a word that means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Well, his neighbours and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, but others said, No, he only looks like that man. But he himself said, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They demanded. And he replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I, I don't know, he said. A
1: number of things jump out at me. One is that Jesus sort of picked this man out because there
0: would have been so many people here in this pool waiting to be healed.
1: What, why him?
0: Well, that's uh, always a good question, isn't it? You know, why is it that Jesus picked, you know, one figure out and not another? We saw the same thing happening uh, at the previous pool in the old city. Um, Why did he pick this guy out? Well, I think John would have given the answer because this was one of these signs about who Jesus was. Um, John's gospel is focused around a whole number of sevens because seven, of course, for Jews was the perfect number, God's number. So his gospel gives us seven signs, seven sayings, seven of everything, seven witnesses. And uh, John has... Seven of these signs, signs in the sense of a pointer. If you will only look at this miracle, it, it's not just a miracle. It's, it's pointing to something about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And and so I, I think the short answer is, one, I don't know why Jesus picked him out. But two, John seems to see clearly that it was because this would have been a great example a sign that showed us something about jesus and what he had come to do and secondly for me the way in which jesus healed very strange spit and mud uh, it is isn't it and i think that instantly underlines to us that jesus had no one way of healing you know today when people pray for folk particularly people who uh, have some sort of healing gift or healing ministry um, it's often just one way that they do that. But one of the things that strikes me in the Gospels is that Jesus had so many different ways of healing. You know, sometimes he touched people. Sometimes he laid hands on them. Sometimes he prayed to his Father in heaven. Sometimes he just commanded them to get up, like the healing at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, sometimes he uses um, spittle, as in this story, Uh, sometimes there's a story where he puts his fingers uh, in a man's ears but here I mean this this one really is isn't it he spits on the ground presumably to soften the hardened mud He, he then makes some mud with his saliva puts it on the man's eyes and then says come to this place you know go to the pool of Siloam and wash so it's almost like a a healing in in several stages here isn't it and it just underlines for me that that there is no one right way of healing you know if we are praying for someone today in the name of jesus to be healed which i hope we do do there's no one right way of doing it just because you saw someone else praying in a particular way doesn't mean you have to try and imitate them jesus used a whole number of different ways why because he said, I only do what I see my Father doing. In other words, I'm seeking to listen throughout the day to what my Father in heaven wants me to do and how he wants me to do it. And for some strange reason, he chooses for this guy to be healed in this particular way.
1: And it sounds like the response of the disciples implies that they were somewhat blind to the reality.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how this whole incident begins in John. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And in asking that question, they were reflecting the traditional Jewish belief that if you were suffering, it must be because of sin. Otherwise, why would you be suffering in this way? There must be sin in your life somewhere. And if there wasn't sin in your life, there must be sin in your ancestor's life somewhere. And of course, this is the whole theme of the book of Job, who suffers greatly, even though he is such a godly man. And all his so-called friends who come and have conversations with him, the whole book is about them trying to say, come on, own up to your sin. If only you owned up to your sin, you'd get better. But he knows there's been no overt sin. He's sought to live a godly life, and yet he's still suffering so greatly. And the whole book, of course, is about pulling apart that traditional idea that sickness is always caused by sin. But clearly, the disciples of Jesus hadn't, got hold of that truth yet, hence the question that they are asking. I think it's pretty clear here that we cannot equate someone being sick with there being sin in their life. That There is never a this is that. Now, do you know what? There are stories in the New Testament where Jesus said that sickness was caused by sin. That story at the pool of Bethesda is very clear clearly linked because Jesus later in the story when he meets the man again says go and sin no more. So in his case there was a link but now we've got this story which shows you can't make that as an automatic assumption every time. So in
1: this case this man received his sight he was healed from his blindness was it a case of happy ever after for everybody involved?
0: Well it certainly was for him but it certainly wasn't for the religious leaders in town because Jesus was in their bad books again because he'd gone and done this on the Sabbath. So why don't we continue and read the rest of this story and see what came out of it. So from John 9 and verse 13 now. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. So note the stress there. He'd made the mud. Ah, this is work. And healing, this is work. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. Well, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. Well, what have you got to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, He's a prophet. The Jews still didn't believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Well, we know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And that's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. But the man replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Well, then they hurled insults at him and said, you're this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man weren't from God... He could do nothing. And to this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now when Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains.
1: There's various layers to this story, the way John tells it, and Mm. blindness is the theme, but in more ways than one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's no doubt that this was a healing of a man physically blind. But you see, we said earlier this was one of John's seven signs in his gospel, and John sees something deeper happening. He sees this physical blindness pointing to spiritual blindness. And here's the crazy thing, isn't it? The the ones who claim to, in inverted commas, see, to have spiritual understanding, to know about God and his ways, the ones John calls the Jews, though as we've said before, he uses that term to mean the Jewish religious leaders, the very ones who trumpeted the fact that they could see God and understood his ways are the very ones, Jesus says, whose eyes are closed, who who can't see what he's done, can't see the significance of it, can't see who he is. And the man whose eyes were physically closed suddenly finds his spiritual eyes also opened In the sense that he now sees who Jesus is. Understand he is the one, the promised one that God was going to send. So those who claim to see, don't see in this story. And the one who never used to see, suddenly sees far more than they have ever seen. How can we be healed from spiritual blindness today? Well... What was it that caused these religious leaders to be blind? I think you could sum it up in one word, probably, tradition. Their traditions had blinded them. Now, you know, all of these religious leaders started out with a good heart. They really did believe in God and they wanted to obey God. But the thing about the Pharisees and the religious leaders was that to try and ensure that they obeyed God and obeyed his commands, they had added a whole host of other commands around those commands to make sure that they never broke them by accident. One of the biggest ones was to do with not working on the Sabbath. But what was work? You know, the, the Old Testament law didn't make it too clear what work was, what you could do and couldn't do. And so initially, out of good heart, their ancestors had started to draw up this ever-increasing list of what was work and what wasn't. Why? So that they wouldn't break the law. The trouble is, by the time of Jesus, these religious leaders were far more focused on their laws, their bylaws, their interpretations of the law than the law itself. And so they had become blinded by their own religious rules and traditions so that they could not see the Son of God, Messiah, when he was before them. So they couldn't even rejoice. I mean, when they see this man, this blind man who clearly been a beggar, all his life, they probably walked past him on the road from here going up towards the temple. And, you know, they couldn't even start by saying, wow, this is fantastic. This is great after all these years. No, what they want to know is who's healed you? It's the Sabbath. And I think that's the thing that we have to watch today if we don't want to end up like these Pharisees, to make sure that Our own religious traditions and rules don't bind us. And let's face it, every church and every denomination probably has their own. And we need to be really, really careful that one, we're not imposing our man-made rules on other people, and two, even more importantly, that we're making sure that these human-made rules aren't keeping us from what God might want from us. I think we've seen that in church history very often when renewal or revival movements have come along and the previous church has sort of rejected this new revival movement for being extremists. And then what has happened as a generation has passed, that revival movement has often settled down and a slightly different revival movement has come up which the previous revival movement has then opposed and and said isn't a real move of God. And it's happened again and again and again in history. So the challenge to us today is to really, really be careful that the way we do it, the way we live out our Christian faith doesn't end up with so many traditions and rules and we end up making these things more important than Jesus.
1: As you said, this is one example, of course, of Jesus' healings. Why did he need to heal
0: people? Well, I think there's probably two reasons for that. Is One, I think it came out of his heart of compassion. You know, there were certainly no hospitals, no health service, no health insurance to be able to run to in those days. And it was, it was a very tangible expression of the love of God and the compassion of God. Uh, by the way, just because we do have health services and health insurance these days doesn't mean that our first port of call when we are ill or someone's ill, you know, it ought to be praying before we do any of that. Not that I'm putting them as opposed to one another, but hey, give Jesus a chance first. But second, it was, it was part of his messianic mission. And these healings were, were all designed to authenticate and undergird the message that he brought. That's why John calls these miracles in his gospel signs, pointers, to take us towards Jesus. If we turn to uh, Matthew's gospel, where Matthew records the account of how Jesus began his public ministry, it's interesting to see that uh, healing wasn't a a sort of add-on. You know, it wasn't, oh yeah, and you can have this as well if you would like it, optional extra for any interested in healing. No, it really was an integral part of his mission from the beginning. Let me read um, Matthew 4 from verse 23. Matthew says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So this was an integral part of declaring the kingdom is here. God's rule is here. There is nothing that lies outside of God's rule, not even sickness. And, and notice how Matthew lists there a whole different bunch of different types of sickness. Why? Because they were all authentications of the fact God's kingdom was breaking in and when God reigns when you let God reign and rule in your life there is nothing absolutely nothing that he cannot touch and transform and note that people from all over this region not just here in the Holy Land but the whole region around news spread like wildfire and they came yes no doubt some of them came simply for healing as some people do today. But in coming for healing, they found far more. They found a healing of their very soul and new life beginning through Jesus. I'm sure
1: I'll say this more than once during this series, but that was then and this is now. How can Jesus heal today?
0: Well, I think the first thing is, is that we've got to give him opportunity. Now, you know, for some churches and traditions... Uh, Praying for the sick is just a regular part of their Sunday meetings, what their leaders do, what they do in small groups. Um, For others, it might not be uh, as as much a part of their way of doing things. But I would say uh, the first way to sort of move Jesus from then to now is to say, at least give him a go. Ask. You know, even if you need to go to your... Doctor, to talk about something, what about praying about it first? I'm not saying don't go and see your doctor, but at least you know, why not go to Dr. Jesus first and ask him? Why not on Sunday ask your leaders, your pastor, your minister, your priest, whoever it might be, to pray for you, to anoint you with oil? I mean, that's one of the things that they used to do in the early church. James says in his letter, you know. Any of you sick, any of you suffering, well, call for the elders of the church and let them anoint you with oil and the prayer of faith will will heal the sick person. And if there are any sins there as well, they'll be forgiven. So I think we have to give Jesus space to do this. And, you know, a lot of churches have closed the door on that. It it can be, oh, well, uh, that was just for New Testament times to get the church going. Well, my goodness, if ever the church needs to be got going again, it's certainly in our generation when so much of the West has become secular and has rejected religion and there's nothing like people seeing a miracle with their own eyes to get them to think, oh my goodness, why and how did that happen? Which is, of course, exactly what happened here in New Testament times. So how to bring... The then to now? Go on. Give him a go. Ask him. Who knows what he may do?
1: I've got to ask you though, it seems as if not everyone is healed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I would be the first to say that. As a pastor over many years, I've prayed for the sick and seen them healed. Sometimes slowly, sometimes miraculously, instantly. And I've prayed for people and not seen them healed. And so the obvious question is why? And my answer is profound, I have no idea. But you know what, it's really no different to people responding to the gospel. When we preach to the gospel, some respond, and some don't, some reject it. Do we stop preaching the gospel just because everyone doesn't respond every time? Of course we don't. We stick at it, why? Because we know the gospel's true. And I think it's the same with healing. We might not see people healed on every occasion that we pray. You know, that might be because of lack of faith or lack of expectation, who knows what. But for goodness sake, don't stop praying for people who are sick anymore than you should stop sharing the gospel with those who need it.
1: Well, perhaps you could pray for us now.
0: Well, why don't we pray together for those who are listening who are sick. Lord Jesus, we pray today for all who are sick and suffering, and we ask that even as they hear these words, they would reach out to you, and that you would stretch out your hand to them, and you would bring healing to them. Thank you that you love us, you care for us, you care about the things that happen to us. And thank you that you care about the sicknesses and ailments that we have physically or mentally. And so today, hear our prayer for all who are sick and suffering, and stretch out your compassionate hand upon them as you did right here all those years ago, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land,
0: tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references, and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30-minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB Player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs, or Bible surprises.